tell you a story. It's a story about six people who died violently in Germany in 1922. It's a story about an investigation that went on for decades, but never identified the perpetrator. It's a story that has become a legend. I want you to come with me into history, into the long, cold dark. This is Long Cold Dark, the story of the murders at Hinterkaifeck. In this episode, we'll look at the official theory of the murders, and then I'll indulge in my own speculation about how the murders actually happened. You should know that I've built a scale model of the crime scene. You can find photos of it in the show notes. They should help you understand the layout of the Hinterkaifeck compound and how people moved through it. There's also some images of tool marks. You'll find out what those are for later in the episode. Sorting cultural lore from fact is difficult in any notorious case, and it's made even more difficult by time, distance, language, and the loss of records. The official theory of events at Hinterkaifeck states that the Gruber family were lured one by one from the house into the stable, and attacked there by a single perpetrator. The actual order of the murders, who died first, may never be definitely known. In the stable, Andreas is supposed to have died first, followed by Cecilia, then Victoria, and finally, Celie. The bodies were left where they fell, with an old door and about a half meter of hay piled over them. Following the attacks in the stables, the killer entered the farm's living quarters, where he encountered Maria Baumgartner. He murdered her with a blow to the head, and then pulled the duvet from the bed to cover her body. At some point after killing Maria, the intruder found Joseph in his carriage, and killed him there. That's the official story. If this process reflected the actual chain of events at Hinterkaifeck, Investigators should have found a trail of footprints, in fact, a profusion of them, in the dirt floor of the stable, as well as on the stone floors of the house. The prints would have been made in blood, especially around the bodies, and in a mixture of dirt and blood within and leading away from the stable. Investigators repeatedly noted that there were no footprints of any kind at the scene, and their notes give the impression that they were puzzled by this. If witness accounts from the initial investigation are accurate, there should have been blood all over the floors. Andreas Schweiger recalled that his shoes were covered in blood just from walking around the crime scene on the day the bodies were discovered. Investigators believed that aside from Schlittenbauer's initial movement of Celie and Andreas' bodies, there was no evidence that the victims' bodies had been moved after their deaths. That is, they were found in the places where they died. Jacob Siegel, one of the men who discovered the crime, recalled that the bodies in the stable were in a heap, with Victoria and Cecilia on the bottom, lying on their backs. Andreas and Celie were lying face down on top of Victoria and Cecilia. If the bodies were left where they had fallen, 
then it's impossible for Andreas to have died first. Victoria and Cecilia would have been the first of the stable victims to die, followed by Andreas and Celie. Keeping all of that in mind, I think we have to consider alternative chains of events leading to the murder of the Gruber family. And here we're getting into my opinions. What you're about to hear is speculative. A hundred years after the murders, and with only some of the original case records surviving, it's impossible to come to a firm conclusion. This is my theory, and it's just that, a theory. I'm not a detective. I'm an artist. I'm a researcher, I'm a passionate amateur. I welcome your theories and your arguments. I believe that the Gruber family were forced, coerced, or threatened into the stable, rather than being lured there. Once they were all trapped, the killer stood behind them and used a blunt instrument to kill them where they stood, or, more likely I think, where they knelt. Maria Baumgartner's murder muddies the timeline. She seems likely to have been awake at the time of the murders, while the investigative commission tested the wall's soundproofing ability and found that screams in the stables could not be heard within the house, Maria certainly would have heard an intruder within the house, especially if he was dealing with aware and resisting victims. But what if Maria wasn't the fifth person to die at Hinterkaifeck? What if she was the first? The maid's room was the first that a visitor or intruder would encounter past the kitchen entrance. If this is where the killer came in, he may simply have attacked Maria from behind as his first act within the house, preventing her from calling out to warn the family and eliminating a witness whose presence may have been a surprise. Maria dying first would explain the blood drops described by the investigators on the kitchen floor. This may have been blood that dripped from the murderer's weapon or his clothes as he moved through the house. From there, the killer only had to walk down a narrow hallway. On either side of the hall were Andreas and Cecilia's bedroom and the bedroom that Victoria shared with her children. More blood drops were found in this hallway. Moving the Grubers into the stable was risky. At any point, one or more of the adults could have put up a fight. It would have been difficult for a single intruder to effectively control three adults and a frightened girl. If there were two intruders, the situation would have been more controllable. Two armed men could have forced the family into the stable far more easily than a single man. Once the victims were dead, the killer seems to have left them where they lay, using whatever materials were convenient to cover the bodies. You'll remember that Andreas Gruber had found evidence of a break-in and suspected that someone was hanging around the farm. Andreas had also complained of his house key going missing in the days before the murders. Investigators found evidence which led them to believe that at least one person had spent time within the farmhouse and its attic and that the roof tiles had been removed in at least two places in order to provide clear lines of sight into the courtyard of the farm. If the farm was surveilled for some time before the murders, if a killer managed to infiltrate the farmhouse and remain hidden from the family for some period of time, this would suggest a killer who was organized, methodical, and patient. This type of invasion and surveillance would take planning, especially if the killer was a stranger. 
The relationship between the killer and the Gruber family is of course unknown. However, the evidence of surveillance suggests that the family were known, at least briefly, to the killer. Still, the evidence is ambiguous and it can be interpreted in a million directions. Victoria's wound patterns in particular suggest that she was the main target of the assault. She was hit many more times than the other victims and may also have been subjected to manual strangulation, which is an up-close and personal method of homicide. No one reported that any of the beds appeared to have been slept in after the murders. Papers, wardrobe drawers, and an empty wallet were found on Victoria's bed. In the elder Gruber's bedroom, the bed was completely in order, according to Jacob Siegel. If the killer did stay in the house after the murders, he appears not to have occupied any of the bedrooms or the bed in the attic. Heinrich Ney reported finding two hollows in the hay on the threshing floor, which led us to the conclusion that this was the resting place of two people. There was human excrement in the vicinity of this resting place. This would seem to indicate that the killer or killers slept in the stable with the bodies of the slaughtered family for at least some time after the murders. It also indicates that the killer or killers used the space in which they were living as a toilet, rather than going outdoors. Hinterkaifeck had no indoor bathroom. We can imagine any number of possibilities here. It may suggest a contempt for the victims indicative of a personal relationship between the Grubers and their killer, or it may suggest depersonalization, equating the victims with excrement based on lack of empathy. Or it could simply be practical. It was cold outside, and the killers may have simply wanted to stay out of the snow. The act of living on the farm after the murders is immensely risky. The killer's risk of discovery rose with every moment he lingered after the murders, that he was able to hide out for several days may only have been due to luck, or it may suggest careful organization. At least one man was spotted outside after the murders. You'll recall that Michael Plokel encountered a man at the bakehouse. If this man was one of the killers, he was apparently unbothered by being seen. Escaping from Hinterkaifeck after the murders presents another moment of risk. The killer apparently escaped unseen, which suggests rationality. Much has been made of the infamous suddenly appearing hay rope. A common theory in this case is that the killer actually watched part of the early investigation before making a daring escape by climbing down the rope and disappearing. It's a fascinating detail, but I'm inclined to think the mystery of the rope has an easier solution, that it was jostled down during a search of the attic and it's probably meaningless. The treatment of the animals at Hinterkaifeck further reflects a high level of control. The Gruber's dog, which was injured at some point before or during the attacks, was kept alive. The offender apparently moved the dog around the property repeatedly, so he must have been confident in his ability to keep the dog under control. Feeding and watering the livestock also suggests organization Keeping the animals fed would keep them quiet and prolong time until discovery. 
the violence inflicted on the Grubers and Maria Baumgartner appears to have been sudden. There's no evidence of pre-mortem torture or abuse, and no evidence of restraints or ligatures was found at the scene. Aside from Seely, who appears to have survived the attack for a few hours, the victims died quickly. The presumed murder weapons, the mattock and a pocket knife, were left at the crime scene. These objects were concealed. They weren't found until the compound was demolished in 1923, so it's impossible to say if they were actually used in the murders. The pickaxe found in the stable feed trough on April 4, 1922, if it was actually used in the murders, was left in plain sight. The evidence of overkill on Victoria's body suggests a personal motive. The use of hand weapons to beat, slash, and possibly strangle is personal. It takes a deep-seated rage to bludgeon six people to death. A distance weapon like a gun would have been far safer. It would have kept the killer physically at a distance from the victims and provided a more certain method of destruction. A personal motive is further suggested by statistical data. According to the FBI, contrary to popular belief, mass murderers infrequently attack strangers who just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. In fact, almost 40% of these crimes are committed against family members, and almost as many involve other victims acquainted with the perpetrator, for example, co-workers. In a small community like Weidhofen, where everyone was known to everyone else, the likelihood that the Grubers were murdered by someone known to them is particularly high. Barring the least likely scenario, a completely unknown wandering stranger who happened to fixate on the Hinterkaifeck farm for reasons known only to him, it's very likely that the Grubers knew or were related to their killer. There is nothing to suggest that the Hinterkaifeck murders were part of a series. No similar crimes within even a wide geographic range in the years before or since indicates that the Gruber family were murdered by what we now call a serial killer. The variety of wounds found on the bodies suggests that some combination of weapons was used, rather than a single weapon. Something blunt, something that punctures, and something that cuts. In February of 1923, when the Gabriel family were demolishing the Hinterkaifeck buildings, workers discovered two weapons, a pocket knife on the floor of the stable, and a mattock hidden in the attic. The Gabriels turned these items over to police. According to the police report, the mattock was heavily stained with blood and concealed in the attic under some planks over some hay. Sergeant Heinrich Nagel, who took the initial report, wrote that it is, quote, generally assumed that the deed was committed with this mattock. The mattock was submitted to the Munich Police Department for fingerprint and blood analysis. The only record of this forensic testing is in Nagel's March 1923 memo. No fingerprints could be found on the mattock. It is absolutely certain that the blood on the mattock is human blood. There were also some hairs on it, which were found to be human hair, and also rabbit or cat hair. A mattock is capable of producing far more complicated wound patterns than something like an axe, for example. 
The flat edge is about as sharp as a standard garden hoe, while the pick end could produce puncture-style wounds. If you're not familiar with Maddox, there's an image of one in the show notes. The star-shaped wounds on Victoria's skull were theorized to have come from the screw that bound the Maddox head to the handle. This would mean that the killer used the broad side of the mattock, not the blade or the pick end, to hit her. This is contrary to the mattock's natural use, in which a person applies force to an object via the sharp ends in order to break it apart. It would be equivalent to a person wielding an axe using the flat side of the blade, not the cutting or even the blunt edge. It also requires more space to maneuver a mattock broadside, and the murders were committed in fairly tight environments. Andreas Schweiger provided the only description of the mattock available in the Hinterkaifeck records. It was apparently between 27 to 31 and a half inches long, and still had blood and hair adhering to it. The mattock would have required a great deal of space in order to swing in any direction, and the descriptions of the wound patterns would suggest that if a mattock was in fact the murder weapon, it was wielded in an unnatural and exceedingly clumsy manner. A mattock requires enough space to swing the weapon in order to develop enough velocity to cause impact injuries. Here's where we're going to get a little weirdly experimental. I am familiar, as you may have guessed, with Maddox. I was raised on a farm, and I have wielded a wide variety of hand tools in my life. And so I obtained a Maddox and used it in a very unscientific experiment. I wanted to see what kind of marks a Maddox might leave and the amount of damage it could do. Obviously, I couldn't swing the tool at a human being, so I had to settle for using wooden planks, which would record impact marks. You can find images of these marks in the show notes. The mattock I used here is not a perfect recreation. It's modern, it's mass-produced, and at least five inches longer, head-to-handle, than the mattock found in the attic at Hinterkaifeck. Again, this is a homemade experiment but I hope it provides a little insight into what the perpetrators would have experienced in attempting to use a mattock as a murder weapon. A mattock is designed to break up tough soil and grub out roots. In some parts of the US, it's referred to as a grub axe. You use it by raising it over the shoulder of your dominant hand and then bringing it down in a hard arc against the ground. While it can be swung sideways, This isn't an instinctive or useful way of wielding the tool, especially for someone familiar with farm labor. It's a heavy object, even for a person who is both fit and experienced with it. It requires stamina to swing a mattock repeatedly. This heaviness also makes the mattock very difficult to control. It is not a precision tool. Again, even for a person accustomed to using it, it's extremely difficult to accurately hit even a stationary target, a moving target, like say a resisting, fighting human being, would have been far more difficult. The main point I want you to take away from all this is that the Matic has problems if we consider it as a murder weapon. 
I would expect a murder committed with a mattock to be sloppier, to leave wounds or marks on the victim's bodies in other locations than the head, on a shoulder, a neck, the back, the chest. The mattock's head is broad and it extends out. A glancing blow downward or sideways is likely to skid off another part of the victim's body. Considering this, it only seems reasonable to me to think about alternative weapons. If the weapon came from Hinter Kaifek, the killer would have had a wide variety to choose from. Tools like brick hammers, which are used to roughly shape bricks and stone, and iron punches, which are used in blacksmithing, as well as standard hammers, and of course a massive variety of other hand tools, would have been common on any farm in 1922. I tested two of these a modern brick hammer, and an antique German iron punch. Again, you'll find images of these tools and the marks they made in the show notes. The iron punch was the most interesting. It has a square hammer head and a round punching end used to create divots or holes in iron. Mine is old, and the square edges of the hammer head have worn down over time. But as you can see from the impact marks made by the newer head of the brick hammer, which is also square, it produces a distinct triangle-shaped mark, and Cecilia had a blow on the top of the head in the shape of a triangle. Victoria had a small round wound on the upper skull cap, and Celie had a round puncture wound on the right side of her face. The flat end of the brick hammer also produced impact marks very similar to those produced by the hoe end of the mattock. While none of this is positive proof that any of these tools were used as murder weapons at Hinterkaifeck, I think we should consider the possibility that the weapon was something other than a mattock. Any of these hammers, combined with the pocket knife located at the scene, could account for the blunt injuries, the puncture injuries, and the gash to Seely's neck. And a standard hammer would have been easy for the killer to carry away with him. All of this experimentation and speculation and theorizing always leads us back to a single question. Who was the Hinterkaifeck murderer? Who had motive, opportunity, and knowledge of the Gruber family. Much of the speculation over the last century has led to Lorenz Schlittenbauer. He was the Gruber's closest neighbor. He had a complicated history with Victoria and Andreas, and he appeared to be in control of the discovery of the bodies. He seemed eerily calm when he found the body of his son, and he seemed more concerned with ensuring the Gruber's cattle were fed than with the reality of the carnage he'd just discovered. Schlittenbauer certainly had the physical strength to kill six people. He also had intimate knowledge of the Gruber family's habits and ample opportunity to move unseen between his own farm and Hinterkaifeck. But what was his motive? The paternity dispute over Joseph was years in the past by 1922. 
If Schlittenbauer had ever really been in love with Victoria, rather than seeking a practical helpmeet and a consolidation of their farm properties, he gave no indication of it in any of his statements. Even in his confrontation with Andreas over Victoria, Schlittenbauer appears almost meek, the opposite of a man in the throes of passionate sexual jealousy. In the end, Schlittenbauer wasn't even held responsible for child support. Andreas was listed as Joseph's guardian. The bad blood between the families seems to have passed. Schlittenbauer and Andreas appear to have settled into a relationship that was, if not necessarily close, at least neighborly and civil. If Schlittenbauer was the murderer, why kill Joseph? If he really believed that he was Joseph's father, why didn't he file a challenge to the Hinterkaifeck inheritance? As Joseph's next of kin, Schlittenbauer may have been entitled to a portion of the estate, but he did nothing. Schlittenbauer was an obvious suspect, and he should have been investigated thoroughly. But he had no discernible motive that holds up to logic, and no concrete physical evidence has ever tied him to the murders. The overall evidence, marks from more than one weapon, the logistics of controlling multiple victims, and the two beds in the hay, strongly suggests to me that more than one person killed the Gruber family and Maria Baumgartner. And there were at least three men who had motive to kill the Gruber family in 1922. Next time on Long Cold Dark, I'll tell you who I think committed the murders, and we'll learn what happened to the people involved in the case after 1922. I'm C.S. Frank. Thanks for listening. <laughs>